In the book, In His Image, 10 Ways God Calls Us to Reflect His Character by Jen Wilkin. She talks about her husband, Jeff, how he is an excellent driver. He has never had an accident except for two incidents in high school that are hardly worth mentioning. Several years ago, she says, as I was driving across town to get into a speaking statement engagement, during Friday night rush in our traffic, having waited three cycles to make the left turn at a busy intersection, I accelerated through a yellow light and continued on my way. A couple weeks later, a ticket came in the mail with a photo evidence of my depravity. I had run the red light. Justice dictated that I had to take $200 to clear my good name. Or so I thought. Let's just say we didn't have an extra $200 lying around. And in my embarrassment over the whole thing, it caused me to stall on paying the ticket. Jeff noticed that the deadline to pay was upon me and gave me a gentle reminder. I was leaving town and, generous, and graciously and generously he agreed to get online and handle the payment. That's when he discovered that it was not, in fact, my good name that was at stake, but his. Because the car was drive, that I was driving was registered to his name. And my ticket had been put on his driving record, his excellent driving record. His response, it's taken care of. Mercy. He paid the ticket without grumbling, and my fault was assigned to his record. In the eyes of the law, the demands of justice had been met by another. Likewise, Jesus took our place. Ephesians 2, chapter 4, verse 5, says that because of His great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by His grace that we have been saved. And to put this into perspective and to continue to talk about this, we're going to look at a story in the Bible. I will invite you to look into the book of John. John chapter 5. And here we find the story of the healing of the pool. Are we there yet? John chapter 5, verses 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, it says, a pool which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Let us stop here for a moment. According to the text, the pool of Bethesda was located where? Near the Sheep Gate. The phrase Sheep Gate in the original language is an adjective referring to something having to do with sheep. However, Scholars differ whether it should be understood here the meaning to be a sheep market or a sheep pool or a sheep gate. 
all which are possible. But regardless of all these possible meanings, the fact still remains that near the pool, there was a place where we find the lamb. And the sheep gate was close to the temple where the lamb was brought through it for sacrifice. Why is this important for us? Because in fact, the lamb means that there is grace. There is no grace if there's no lamb. The sheep gate was close to the temple where the lamb was brought to sacrifice. There's no grace without the lamb. Grace only exists because the lamb exists. In Latin, the word for grace is gracia. In similar in Spanish, gracias, which means gratis. In other words, free. You pay nothing. It's free. That's grace. And salvation is by grace. You pay nothing. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 says, Therefore it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God. Looking into the dictionary, what does gift mean? The word gift means that it is a gift or a present. It's an item given to someone without the expectation or the payment of anything in return. It's gift. It's free. The moment you try to do something, meditorial, the moment that you try to do something, then it's not a gift anymore. You may have fallen this morning, I wonder, into the depths of misery. You have walked maybe away from God. You have doubted God sometimes. But the beautiful thing about life is that even in our worst situations, God is still there with us. If we repent, when we give our life to Jesus from the depths of our heart, regardless where we are in our relationship with Him this morning, you may say, Lord, I give you my life. I surrender my all to you. And that's when salvation comes to you by grace. You're not defined by your past. You're not in accidents. You are not here by chance, because when God sees you, God sees His beautiful creation. But that's only possible, first of all, when we believe, and second of all, when we accept it. God is not going to force Himself. Here's the gift. Are we going to take it? Are we going to receive it? And it says in the story, that because there is a sheep that was near the pole, there was the lamb. And who is the lamb of God? John chapter 1 verse 29 says that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Look, look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God gave his son, Jesus Christ to die the ultimate sacrifice to redeem us from sin. God Himself, Jesus Christ, He is the Lamb. Sin often leads us to death, but since Jesus died in our place, He died in the cross of Calvary, so we no longer are condemned forever. We can claim this gift through the 
believe in allegiance to Him. He paid the price for my sin. He paid the price for your sin. The Bible says in verse 2, Then now in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Arabic it means Bethesda, at which is surrounded by five colonnades. And the name Bethesda in the original language means House of Mercy. And John tells us in verse 3 that a great number of disabled people lay there. He mentions three groups. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So now imagine, you, you enter into this place, you see the pool, and then over here, you see the sheep gate. And through the sheep gate, there's the temple where they're taking the sheep for them to be sacrificed. And it says here that where you find the lamb, you find grace. But at the edge of the pool of Bethesda, of the house of mercy, it's the pool of grace. John describes three different types, as we mentioned, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now I ask, who is the blind? The ones who cannot see. The lame, who is the lame? Those who fall down and get up, fall down and get up. And who are the paralyzed? Those he cannot walk. I find this interesting because we can all identify ourselves one way or another with one of three groups that are mentioned here that are sick at the edge of the pole. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. For example, the person who is blind is the one who you cannot see. There's a lot of people in the world now who cannot see and some who don't want to see. You tell them, come, look what the Bible says. Look at the truth. And they're like, no, 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 I don't want to see. They have spiritual blindness and they don't want to see. You see their lives, everything's bad, things are falling apart, things are out of, out of place, their fam- family's falling apart, the son is doing drugs. And you show them the truth, you show them the word, and they don't want to see. They're spiritually blind. In that context, and in that occasion, Jesus did heal people who were physically blind. But today, Jesus wants to heal our spiritual blindness. And how is He doing that? How do I know that? Because Jesus is healing us today. And Jesus is healing you now, right now. Because you were once away from Him. But one day, you gave your life to Him. It's not about my own striving. It's not, it's not me bumping into walls. Sometimes we are blinded by the pleasures of this world, money, possessions. They blind us. But now we are here. We could have been anywhere, but now we are here today. And those who are watching online are listening there. I don't think that it's a coincidence. We have decided to give our life to Jesus. It's not by chance. Once we give in the idea that we want to spend time with Him and get to know Him. Yes, it's not easy. 
Every time we take a step forward, we feel like we're taking three steps back. But you came to church today. You're watching online. You read the word. Why do you read the word? Because you recognize that the word is truth. And it has a way of ordering your life in such a way that you're not stumbling into your own blindness. In this world, there's a lot of people who are spiritually blind. But who else was there at the edge of the pole? The lame. Those who keep falling down and keep getting up. Those who keep falling down, keep getting up. Could it be possible that some of us are spiritually lame in that sense to say, We say, okay, Lord, I'm going to change my life. Okay, now for reals. And then a week goes by. We fall back again, and then we get back from the ground. We say a month later, okay, Lord, today is the day. And then a month goes by, and then we fall down to the ground, and then we get back up. Beloved, that's because we're spiritually lame. But Jesus can heal our spiritual lameness. That's the wonderful message of the gospel. Otherwise, it would not be good news. What must I do that Jesus can heal me? I have to go to the pool of Bethesda. I have to go to the house of mercy, to the pool of grace. What's the final group that was there? The people who lay sick. They're there at the edge of the pool. They're paralyzed. Who are the paralyzed? Those who cannot walk. So imagine a person who is paralyzed. They imagine great things. They close their eyes. But then when they open their eyes, they see the reality. They see themselves lying in the ground, not moving around, just laying still. Their true condition is tied down to their immobility. Who are those who are paralyzed spiritually? Those who have dreams, but their realities are different. Oh, I want to move to another house. But you're still living at your other house. Oh, I wish I had more work. But you still ha don't have work. Oh, I wish that I, I was in a different relationship with someone. Well, but you still are not talking to each other. Though you're paralyzed. Those are, are, those are the people who are paralyzed. Those who are tied down to the obstacles, to circumstances of their life. And the Bible says that those who are sick, those people that were sick and that were lying next to the pool of Bethesda, waiting for the water to move because there was a tradition mentioned in verse 4 that from time to time an angel would, of the Lord will come down and stir the waters. The first one to jump into the pool after such disturbance would be cure of whatever disease they had. The Bible commentary in page 948 says that the story of the angel coming down with supernatural healing powers upon the water of the pool appears not to have been part of the original gospel, but was probably an added attempt to explain verse 7. Further, this verse is not found in any of the earliest manuscripts from the book of John. However, this legend of an angel coming down with supernatural healing powers was based on early tradition, indicated by the fact that Tertullian from Carthage knew of it at the beginning of the third century. 
All to say that this passage evidently preserves that there was a popular opinion regarding the waters of the pool. The Bible says that they were waiting for the water to move, but it was all a tradition. It was a legend. It was a superstition. And you can, I don't know if you, when you have your Bible into the front, does verse 4 appear in your Bible? Some Bibles, if the text appears, it appears in italics. Some verses omit the entire verse altogether, and they just put a footnote at the bottom of the, of the, of the Bible. That's the reason. It's a myth. It's a legend. And you know the same thing happens to us today. What? Even through this story took place in a different era, in a different culture, our reality is still the same. Why? Because we are humans just like they were. We still continue to have human tendencies today when it comes to traditions, conspiracies, superstitions. In the new year, they say to us, eat 12 grapes for the 12 months of the year before midnight so you can have a good year. If you carry a small rock around you and it has an inscription, you will have good fortune. Imagine those people carrying a rock all day. If you drink this water, you will not get sick. Months later, the person gets sick. If you wear this bracelet, it will protect you. Months later, the person dies of cancer. Why do we choose to believe in these myths? And these fabricated stories. Because when everything is going wrong in our lives, we are capable of believing in anything. Verse 4 says that they were people that were sick, waiting at the edge of the pool to be healed, waiting for the angel of the Lord to stare the water, but nothing would happen because these stories, now traditions, were built upon superstition. The stirring of the water had nothing to do with an angel coming down. Sometimes we go through our lives believing in the stories that have been possessed or passed down from generation to generation from our family based on tradition, but not based on reality. Desire of Ages, page 202, says that the stronger trampled the weak in the anxiety to reach the waters when they were agitated. Men died at the brink of the pool. The results were devastating. The more selfish, determined, the strong, the mightiest, the men with more might, the more likely to reach the pool first to be healed. Imagine that tragedy as you're entering the pool. You see blood being smeared into the floor. You see people who are there just lying hurt because they had been ran over by other people. Jesus chose the worst case scenario, the most needy, the least likely to benefit. Why? Because the gifts of grace from the house of mercy are for all. It's not about who gets to the pull first. It's not about our own merit or strength. It's not about if we are self-sufficient. It's, all, it's not about striving. It's all about abiding. It's about believing and accepting His gift of grace. His grace, love, and mercy covers me. Verse 5 says that one who was there had been inv- invalid for 38 years. Now, interesting. 
that the Bible would list 38 years. Remember when Jesus resurrected Lazarus? We'll see that. John 11. Why didn't he resurrect him when he was freshly dead? Why did he wait four days until his body was starting to rot, to discompose, until he smelled bad? Why didn't he arrive when he had just died? After all, wasn't Lazarus his best friend? In another occasion, Jesus healed a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Why didn't he cure her when he was just hemorrhaging for a week? Why did he wait 12 years? And this man who was paralyzed for 38 years, why did he wait 38 years? Here's an interesting lesson for us. Because there's always unbelievers. And God loves unbelievers. But He waits, and He waits, and He waits until we reach a moment in our lives where we will believe. If Jesus would have healed the paralyzed man who was paralyzed for three months, the unbelievers would say, Anyone could have done that. If Jesus would have raised the man from the dead who had just died, what would the unbelievers say? Well, you see, he wasn't really dead. If Jesus would have healed the woman who had been suffering from the hemorrhages for a month or so, what would the unbelievers say? Anyone could have done that. But so that the unbelievers would have no arguments, Jesus healed a man that was paralyzed 38 years. Jesus healed a body that was already rotting. Jesus healed a woman that had been suffering for 12 years. It's like Jesus is giving them humanly impossible situations. And saying, okay, what else do you need me to do so that you will believe? The statement mentioned by John, that the man was paralyzed for 38 years, precludes any possibility that the man could have been suffering from a temporary disability. For nearly a lifetime, this great center of healing had been no help. And the irony is, here's the irony, that this man found no mercy in the house of mercy. Desire of Ages, page 202, says that the man sat alone and friendless, hopeless, paralyzed, crippled. His case was the worst of those assembled on the brink of the pool. Have your friends deserted you because you believe something different that they don't believe? Are your friends still with you through your suffering, through your pain? through your anguish, or when you need your friends the most, they run away, and you're left there by yourself to pick up the pieces. What is Jesus telling us here? For how many years have you been paralyzed? You feel paralyzed. You try, you try, you try, you try, but you go nowhere. Psalms 121 says to me, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? 
My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When things get bad and the bad gets worse, who do I turn to? Who do I go to? Your hopes and your dreams are stalled. Things are probably not going the way that you wanted them to go. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he specializes in making the things that are humanly impossible possible. Verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying and learned that he had been in his condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? What do you mean, do you want to get well? This seems like a ridiculous question. But do you know what's the problem? Do you know why Jesus asked this question? Because there's people who are sick deep inside, but they don't want to be healed. Jesus cannot heal you if you don't want to be healed. Jesus' question was rhetorical, but it was obvious that the man desired release from his disease. But the question saved for the sufferer's attention to immediately focus on Jesus and not on himself. Why do we get into these circumstances? Because we're just looking here. But when we come, those circumstances come into our life, we are forced then, instead of looking here, to look up. And when we look up, and we stop looking here, and we look up, we see the wonderful face of Jesus. And we see Him stretching His arm towards us and giving His hands to pick us up from the ground. And to say to us, I, I'm here. I got you. With his tender words of compassion. These are the moments. These are the situations that enables us to look up. And verse 7 says that he said, Sir, I have no one to help me to the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone goes down ahead of me. What was his reply? Sir, I have no one to help me. Do you know what this speaks to? This speaks to the physical misery and the desertion of his friends. This man was abandoned. The paralyzed man was completely abandoned. Every time his revival of hope started in his heart, it ended in bitter disappointment. Have you tried something in your life constantly and you get to the point where you stop striving? And you say, why do I even try this? Every time I'm going to get the same results. And when once you start striving and you're, you're trying to get something that you desperately need and you get to the point where you, you, your, your hope revives in your heart and you get there and then it doesn't come through. <sighs> Why do I even try? That's how the man felt. Why would, why would he want the pull if Jesus was there? Jesus is offering him life. He's standing right in front of him. And this guy asks, Oh, I have no one to take me to the pool. 
And Jesus is literally in front of him. John 14.6 says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Literally, the source of life is standing in front of him, reaching out to him. And this man is asking, where's the pool? I'm asking, why? Do you want to be healed? At this point in the narrative, it is important to mention that his hope was still centered on the supposedly miraculous pool. It had not yet occurred to him that Jesus could heal him from other means. Verse 8. When Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mats, and walk. And notice, when Jesus said that, he made no attempt to refute the superstition regarding the pool, nor did he question the causes of the man's disease. You know, many times we want to fix people. Oh, if you're reformed, then you can come to the church. Jesus made no attempt to ask why he got the disease, the causes of the disease, why he believed what he believed about the pull. Jesus just asked them to trust him, to believe him. He had a positive approach that enjoined the man to demonstrate his faith. We need to stop promoting the good things of the gospel in the church. God's love, God's forgiveness, God's grace towards us. Instead of promoting rules, legalism, things that bring people out of the church. Because really, what the church is all about is about coming together with Jesus. We don't want to draw away from Jesus. We want to draw together with Jesus. And Jesus says that he had a positive approach that demonstrated to this man his faith. And the miracle occurred. Verse 9 says that immediately, the original word is eutheos. The man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. John uses this word immediately, but not as often as Mark uses it in his gospel. And here is a striking contrast. Why did John use the word immediately? Because it was, it, it was con- contrasting it was contrasting the 38 years which this man had been sick. That's why he said immediately. And this man was completely restored. And when he used the word to walk, he used it here in the original language to imply not merely that he was just walking, but that he had a new facility that continued to possess. He had a new way of life. Because he walked, now he could do things. The American theologian, Timothy Keller, says God's saving love in Christ is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction of repentance moves us to cling to and to rest in God's mercy and grace. We can look up. We can get healed. He can make us new. But we have to believe 
and we have to accept. The good news for us this morning is that the gifts of grace from the house of mercy are for all. Regardless where we find ourselves in our journey with God, we can look up, we can be healed, He can make us new. Jesus is extending His gift of grace to us. The question for us this morning is, will we accept the invitation? We will allow Jesus to come and to dwell in our hearts. We allow Jesus to finally come into our hearts and make that commitment to Him. Are you tired of running around? Are you tired of going in circles? Are you tired of just constantly striving and striving and striving? It's time to come home. No more running around. I oh, need to think about it. What do you need to think about? Either you believe or you don't believe. Either you trust God or you don't trust God. It's not about, I need to think about it. It's about, I need to commit myself to Him. Amen. That's what it's all about. If you desire to stand up, if you desire to do this and to commit your life to Jesus, and you want to, and even if you have done it in the past, and you want to renew your vow with Jesus, I would ask you to stand up as we sing hymn 292, Jesus, I Come. Our Father in heaven, this is really our prayer today, that we will come to you uh, with all of our wants and all desires. If we have not made that step to trust you, to commit to you, to accept that gift, Lord, help us, Lord, that we may accept it soon. Thank you for loving us and sustaining us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.